Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We're in a series called Kingdom Life. We are looking at how Jesus taught believers to live. Join us now as we dive into another passage. Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Will you please be seated? Well, good morning. So I got some flack for last week's sermon. It's not unusual for pastors. Uh, And uh, apparently I need to eat some humble pie because the Carolina Gamecocks actually beat Auburn yesterday. (laughs) So I repent right now of my sin of uh, making fun of the Gamecocks. Well, I wonder if you have a realistic view of who you truly are. In Hans Christian Andersen's classic folk tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, two swindlers arrive at the capital city of an emperor who spends lavishly on clothing at the expense of state matters. Posing as weavers, they offer to supply him with magnificent clothes that will be invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. Well, the emperor hires them, and they set up their looms, and they go to work. And a succession of officials and then the emperor himself visit them to check their progress. Now, each of them sees that the looms are empty, but they pretend otherwise to avoid being thought to be a fool. Well, finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished, and they they mime dressing him, and he sets off in a procession before the whole city. The townsfolk uncomfortably go along with this pretense, not wanting to appear inept or stupid, until a child blurts out, but the emperor has nothing on at all. Listen to the voice of the child, exclaims his father. What the child had said was whispered then from one to another. But he has nothing on at all, at last cried out all the people. Well, the emperor was upset because he knew that the people were right and that he had been fooled. However, he continued on in the procession, walking more proudly than ever. Unfortunately, pride can blind us to who we truly are or how we appear to others, although not perhaps to the innocent insight of a child. In our gospel reading today from Luke, we see all of this encapsulated in two stories. And they're really, uh, well, the first one is a parable about two prayers. And the second is a real-life incident involving children. Jesus is teaching his disciples that the kingdom of God belongs to those who humble themselves and recognize that they are lost without his help. There's a saying we hear in our culture sometimes that goes like this. God helps those who help themselves. You've probably heard it. God helps those who help themselves. But what we'll see today is the truth is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. It's only those who recognize their brokenness and lostness apart from God who will inherit the kingdom. So let's turn to our reading from Luke chapter 18 and we'll begin with the parable of two prayers. Now the context of our first story is that Jesus is finally heading to Jerusalem. After three years of discipling these 12 men, he's heading to Jerusalem and we know that he's heading there to die. He's going to be put on a cross and he is going to be scapegoated and he is going to be made to pay for something he didn't do. So time is of the essence for Jesus and his teachings are becoming more and more urgent. And now he shares a very direct parable. You would have to be pretty stupid not to see what he's saying here. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and he treated others 
uh, sorry, who, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And you remember, may remember from our sermon series a couple of months ago that the word parable comes from the Greek word parabole or parabole, meaning a comparison. It's a putting a, uh, beside one thing to another to make a point. And in scripture, a parable is a heavenly uh, or an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It takes something its hearers can relate to, and then it teaches to those who listen an important message about the kingdom of God. Now, we're not quite sure who specifically Jesus is sharing the story with. It could be the Pharisees or it could be his disciples. But from what Luke tells us, we know that it's with people who are self-righteous and proud. And typically this means the religious folks, such as the Pharisees, I'm afraid. The ones who are trusting in their own abilities to save themselves. These are the folks who Jesus seems to struggle with the most. He calls them whitewashed tombs, or he calls them hypocrites, or he says to them that they are a brood of vipers. None of this is very flattering. But I think it's because he's so concerned that they are leading others astray, and it really frustrates him. Well, how so? How are they doing that? Well, look at the Pharisee in our parable, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, at first glance, he sounds like a pretty good guy, doesn't he? Sounds like he's doing the right things, okay? He's following all the right rules. Well, besides how misguided this belief is, His prayer actually is really in effect saying, I thank you, God, that I am so great. Thank you, God, that I am so great. He's performing for the crowd around him. And his prayer is all about who? Is it God? No, it's not about God, is it? His prayer is all about him. We've got five personal pronouns used in just two sentences. Because of his pride, this man has a distorted view of who he really is. And the real danger of pride is that it blinds us to see how we really stand before God. Which brings us back to his misguided belief that he can keep the law. By saying that he's not one of these kinds of people he's describing, he's saying, well, I, I haven't done these things. But actually, according to God's standards, he's broken all of the law. He cannot keep any of it. The second man, though, is a tax collector. Now, these were some of the most hated people in Israel. Even today, most of us are not very fond of them, are we? Tax collectors, then, were collaborators with the Roman occupiers. And to line their pockets, they would take more money than they were supposed to collect. You can imagine the resentment that there was towards them among the people. But this man has a very different way of praying than the Pharisee. In verse 13, we read this. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. From the man's position, from his posture, and from his prayer, we see this marked difference with the Pharisee. Think about his position. He stands far off and out of the way. He's not trying to be the center of attention. Secondly, his posture. He cannot look God in the eye, which would be to look to heaven. And he even is physically beating himself. And then his prayer. His prayer is one of brokenness and humility. He has a right understanding of who he is before a holy God. 
As one commentator puts it, there is no self-congratulation, there is no summary of his good deeds, there is no sense that God ought to be honoured or obligated by the petitioner. There is but one recognition, his need for God's mercy. The Greek word used here for mercy, hilaskamoi, translates the Hebrew word to cover. It's to cover something. Its background assumes that the person praying cannot earn forgiveness, so he simply appeals for God's forgiving compassion to cover over his sins. This means that he recognizes that without God's help, he is lost. What he's praying without realizing is that he needs the blood of Jesus to cover over all of his sins, to cover over. And this is what Jesus' death on the cross will enable. His sacrifice will atone for all the sins of this man. Well, Jesus concludes the story by explaining what will happen to the two men. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In God's upside-down kingdom, it's not the powerful, respected religious leader who's made right with God as the hearers might have expected, but it's the despised, lowly tax collector, a man who exemplifies the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and who lives out Psalm 51, verse 17, where David writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As the commentator Daryl Bock puts it, bravado and appearance mean nothing. Resume and social status mean nothing. Self-reliance means nothing. What counts is a heart that appreciates what God can give. The tax collector, therefore, is the one who Jesus says goes home justified. In seeking God's forgiveness, he receives it. And what does the Pharisee receive? Well, exactly what he asked for. What did he ask for? Nothing. He asked for nothing. He received nothing. Remember, he thinks he's okay already because of all the things he's supposedly done. He doesn't want God's help, and he doesn't get it. Where he's missed the point is that his standard of comparison is with other people and not with the character of God. He's looking around at everyone else and saying, well, I think I'm marginally better than that person and that person and that person. Therefore, I'm okay. He's not comparing himself with the character of God. As long as he's better than all the people around him at keeping the rules, people such as the tax collector, then he believes he's okay. But he's like the emperor with his new clothes. Because of his pride or his hubris, he has a distorted idea of who he really is. And so he's in mortal danger. He needs a child to shout out, but the emperor has nothing on at all. Which brings us to the brief but related passage that follows this parable. Luke 18, 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him saying, or called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
It's a sweet passage, isn't it? It it conjures up this imagery of Jesus laughing and playing with the children and of how he has time for even the least important in the world. I don't know if you've watched it yet, but we've been talking about that series on Netflix, or it's not Netflix, it's on on the app. They have their own app called The Chosen. It's about the life of Jesus. It's really worth watching. Um, And there's a great episode on there that focuses just on how he treats children. It's really well done. But... This is also a challenging passage because, once again, it challenges the notion of self-sufficiency or saving ourselves. Pastor Kent Hughes writes this, What is the quality of being children, and especially those characterized as infants in the opening line of this passage? It's helplessness. Every child born into the world is absolutely, completely, totally, actually helpless. And so it is with every child who is born into the kingdom of God. Children of the kingdom enter it helpless. If Billy Graham enters the kingdom, it will not be because he has personally preached to more people than any man in history. It will not be because he has remained impeccable in his finances when so many have failed. It will not be because he has been a faithful husband. It will not be because, of, uh, because despite his fame, he has remained a humble, self-effacing, kind man. When Billy Graham enters the kingdom, it will be because he came to Christ as a helpless child. It will be because of God's undeserved kindness towards Billy's helplessness. Yes, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Who will receive the kingdom? Those who recognize their helplessness, not the self-sufficient. Who will receive the kingdom? Those who are humble and not proud. Who will receive the kingdom? Those who honor God, not those who honor themselves. As we come to a close today, I want to ask you, how do you view yourself? Do you have a right view? Do you view yourself more like the Pharisee or the tax collector? Are you depending on your own standards to save yourself by measuring yourself against the people around you and thinking, well, I think I'm better than them, I should be okay? Or are you measuring yourself rightly against the character of God? Be careful not to think of yourself better than you are. It's true, you may not have cheated on your spouse, but remember that second look you took at someone this week or the clicks that you made on that screen. Or you may not have been put in jail for theft, but what about those taxes, just a little bit, that you evaded paying last year? You may not have been caught slandering someone, but did you pass on gossip this week or even just participate in an unhelpful conversation about someone else? We need to learn to say, there but for the grace of God go I. And like the tax collector to then say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We need to have a right view of who we are, not a false humility, but an honest assessment, knowing that God helps those who cannot help themselves. In an excellent book on apologetics confronting Christianity, Christian writer Rebecca McLaughlin writes this, It has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die. My children would be crushed. My friends would leave. My thoughts are not all bad. Many are good and kind and true. But like a bag of flour infested with maggots, no part of me is pure. You see, apart from God, as the Apostle Paul puts it, apart from God, no one is righteous, not one of us. None of us does good, not one. 
It's one of the reasons I love the prayer that we say each week right before we receive Holy Communion. It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. It was written in the 16th century by one of our Anglican founding fathers, Thomas Cranmer. It says this, We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. Apart from your grace, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Reminds us that apart from the grace of God, we are not worthy to come to his table. None of us has earned our salvation, and yet God shows us his unconditional love and mercy best seen upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to have a childlike trust in God, walking hand in hand with him through this life in humility and dependence, accepting his offer to help us and to guide us and to save us. Maybe it's time to get down on your knees and ask God to forgive you and to save you from your sin. Maybe it's time to repent of trying to save yourself by trusting in your own strength and your own actions. Maybe it's time to stop trying to perform for the sake of others and to be honest with them about your own struggles and failings. Maybe it's time to join that life group you've been thinking about joining because you realize you cannot make it on your own. Maybe it's time to submit everything you have to him and say, God, I choose to follow your leading and stop trying to control the outcome of my life. Whatever it is, come before him with humility knowing that his mercy is bigger than your sin and his love is greater than you could imagine. God helps those who cannot help themselves. He will give his grace to you and he will draw near to you. He will cleanse you of your sin and he will turn your mourning into joy and he will exalt you. And for this, we can all say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you help those who cannot help themselves. People like me and people like everyone sat here today. Lord, would you help us to recognize our need for you and that we cannot save ourselves, Lord Jesus? Would you help us to turn to you, to thank you, to receive the gift that you offer because of the cross of Jesus Christ, that on that place you covered our sins Help us to repent and turn to you and receive the free gift of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.